Welcome to episode 12 of the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. There is more knowledge here than anywhere else in the galaxy. Only members of the Jedi Council are allowed access. Guarding the holocrons is one of the most important duties a Jedi can be given. Do you think you're up to the task? Star Wars fans, welcome to episode 12 of the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. I'm Rob, your host, and we are recording this episode on Tuesday, May 28th, 2019. Before we get started this week, I just wanted to take a brief moment uh, to give a special shout out and a special thanks to all of our service men and women, uh, either active duty or retired, and just say thank you for the service that you provide to us and our country. And to the rest of you, I definitely hope that you all had a safe and fun holiday weekend. So uh, hopefully you're all refreshed and ready to hit the ground running. Uh, It's going to be a pretty exciting week. We are just a little bit less than a week away from the opening of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge out at the Disneyland Resort. And I know that uh, Tom and Michelle, Tom, my co-host, and Michelle, his wife, who comes on occasionally, uh, are both going to be out there experiencing Star Wars Galaxy's Edge at the Disneyland Resort. And I look forward to hopefully having them on uh, next week's show to talk a little bit about their experience and give us some information uh, about what we can expect when we do actually get access to that land. But for this particular episode, I wanted to take on another listener question that came in from one of our listeners who's been with us since the beginning of the show, Amy. And she had sent a message a while back after I'd done the episode on lightsabers with a couple of follow-up questions that she wanted to know more about. And so we are going to go ahead and jump right into answering those. Now, the first question that Amy had was uh, basically asking for more information uh, or explanations on the use of lightsabers in battles, as well as what the training process was. Um, You know, we see a little bit of Luke being trained in his force abilities within the Empire Strikes Back. uh, And we see Rey very briefly uh, over the course of The Last Jedi Um, basically just doing some exercises, but that is not something within the films that has been uh, dealt with in any great degree. And then also just getting a little bit more information on some of the mystical aspects of lightsabers and some of the lightsaber lore, but we'll get into that in just a moment. I did want to start off by talking a little bit about how the Jedi approached lightsaber training for the initiates and the Padawans within the Order, And then kind of how that feeds into their self-exploration of various styles once they actually become Jedi Knights. So in regards to the Jedi Order, there are seven main forms of lightsaber combat that are available to be taught to Jedi. Some are taught to everyone. Others are restricted to only certain members of the Jedi Order. And really, uh, the focus on the various types of forms that the Jedi would learn is something that evolved over the life of the Order and kind of changed as their mandate changed, depending on if, if they were facing scenarios where they were maybe in combat with other force wielders carrying lightsabers, whether they're dealing with uh, just regular everyday people who are using blasters against them, 
or specialized uh, military forces such as the Mandalorians. All of those had various impacts on the different training styles for the Jedi. So delving a little bit into those seven forms, the first form that you come to is called Shi Cho, and that was known as the Way of the Sarlacc. Another name for that particular lightsaber form was Determination Form. And basically, this is the oldest form of lightsaber combat. It's the most basic. It is one that was taught to all members of the Jedi Order. And really, from the moment an initiate or youngling would come into the Jedi Order and had a training lightsaber placed in their hand, this is the form that they would all start with. It focuses primarily on simple tactics. uh, And because it was developed when Jedi first took up lightsabers as a means of melee combat and had transitioned from using more conventional swords, uh, it's really based on the foundations of all sword fighting. So it deals with things like strike zones. It deals with things like parries and blocks. Uh, It teaches the the user uh, very fine control of their body movement and teaches them about getting a feel for their weapon. So Obviously, a lightsaber, uh, given that it didn't actually have a physical blade, uh, that blade had no weight to it unless it was coming in contact with another object or another lightsaber blade. So that was something that you really had to get a feel for that weapon and understand where that blade was at all time, which which is one of the reasons that non-force users had such a difficult time uh, using a lightsaber in combat. And at the time of the fall of the Jedi Order, this form was mainly only used in combat if all other forms of, of lightsaber combat had failed. So this was kind of the fallback. Um, interestingly enough, because it was not a form that a lot of a Jedi would put effort into mastering because it was so basic, those who learned to master this form actually ended up having an advantage over those Jedi if all other forms failed. So for this particular form of lightsaber combat, uh, notable practitioners of this within the Jedi Order, Obi-Wan Kenobi most certainly uh, spent years perfecting this form under the tutelage of Qui-Gon Jinn. Prior to the events of the Phantom Menace, uh, Qui-Gon was very interested in having Obi-Wan focus on basic combat techniques, and we'll get into a little bit more of of the other forms that Obi-Wan adopted over time. But Obi-Wan's core fighting ability and lightsaber skills and the fact that he had mastered the Shicho form was something that actually helps him out uh, a lot within the films as we see him. Now, the second form of lightsaber combat that the Jedi were trained in was known as Makashi, and this was also known as the Way of the Salamari. It also had a couple of additional names, either Contention Form or the Duelist Form. Uh, This was a form that was developed kind of as an advanced form of lightsaber versus lightsaber combat, uh, which became necessary primarily because in in those early days of the Jedi, because everyone was learning Shicho, they needed a way to gain an advantage over those who had actually mastered the the Shicho form. And this is primarily a one-handed technique. Uh, It's very precise and it's very subtle. Uh, relies heavily on wrist control and body movement and having incredibly uh, detailed footwork and generally gets epitomized by smooth and efficient motions as opposed to being flashy or having lots of acrobatics involved in it. Uh, Within the films, this is a form that uh, the most notable practitioner of of Makashi was Count Dooku. So when you watch Count Dooku fighting Anakin and Obi-Wan, Uh, He's got that one-handed approach. He's got his uh, slightly curved lightsaber, which allows him to really implement those fine-tuned wrist movements. It's truly a duelist stance, and he had a very elegant style of fighting that was very effective, even against Jedi such as Obi-Wan and uh, Anakin, who 
had at that point taken a part in any number of confrontations, and Obi-Wan certainly had very highly skilled abilities with this lightsaber. Form 3 is called Seresu, and also known as the Way of the Minoc or Resilience Form. And this is another form which Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, was trained in and became a master in under the tutelage, again, of Qui-Gon Jinn. This is primarily a defensive form, and it was developed to protect the Jedi from both ranged and melee attacks. So while the earlier forms are primarily based on opponents, other lightsaber wielders, or or people using force pikes, or uh, any kind of melee weapon... Seresu was developed after the time where the Jedi believed that they had defeated the Sith. The Sith were extinct. Uh, There wasn't really going to be a focus on lightsaber versus lightsaber combat anymore. But blasters were becoming more and more uh, a regular part of the galaxy. And in their role as peacekeepers, the Jedi were in a position where they needed to be able to defend themselves from those ranged attacks, which were becoming very widespread across the galaxy. So this particular form is epitomized by uh, a Jedi who keeps the blade of the lightsaber close to their body and relies on footwork to stay uh, squared to the opponents that they're facing. The lightsaber would protect the core of the body at all times, and the movements with the lightsaber would stay very short and efficient, which would essentially allow them to create a shield uh, around themselves through which no ranged attack could penetrate. Uh, It really is the ultimate defensive form in regards to lightsaber combat and really could handle ranged or melee attacks from a number of opponents. So while it was primarily created to deal with ranged attacks, it also was effective against melee opponents as well. Again, along with Shicho, this is the form that Qui-Gon had taught Obi-Wan and really instructed him to focus on for the entirety of his Padawan years. Um... This gets dealt with uh, within a book that had just recently come out called Master and Apprentice, which kind of gives us a lot more backstory on uh, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and their relationship. And it was based on the fact that Qui-Gon really wanted to instill within Obi-Wan the ability to create this impenetrable defense that nothing could get through uh, because he truly cared about Obi-Wan and wanted him to stay safe. The other thing to note about Seresu, and I know that there are people out there who think that uh, when Obi-Wan is training Luke on the Millennium Falcon with that training remote, uh, that he is teaching Luke Skywalker techniques that are really more associated with Shicho. But in my mind, uh, in looking at the movements of Luke during that training simulation, he really does embody what we're talking about here with Seresu. So He is keeping the lightsaber in front of his body, short movements, and basically using that to deflect the blaster bolts from that training remote. That's probably going to be a point of contention with some people out there. Um, I know that there are people who get pretty passionate about their belief about which forms certain Jedi or certain people within the films used. But I would say that my contention there is that Seresu is probably more appropriate for what Luke was learning there on the Millennium Falcon. Form 4 is called Ataru. Uh, It's also known as the Way of the Hawk Bat, or the Aggression Form. And for this particular style of lightsaber combat, it was really designed around high-energy tactics, speed, acrobatics, and power, which are really, if you think about it, all things which a Jedi would be able to enhance with their Force abilities. So this form is focusing on teaching total use of one's body to attack, Uh, It's the form that most relies on the use of the force by the particular user to augment those attributes. 
And the big benefit of this particular form is that because the user, uh, the wielder of the lightsaber, is using the force to enhance their attacks, it allows them to compensate for any potential disadvantages they may have. So when you're thinking about that, we're thinking about perhaps Jedi who are smaller in stature, Jedi who have restricted mobility, um, or even older Jedi. Uh, When you think about uh, an Obi-Wan Kenobi facing Darth Vader on the Death Star, uh, he clearly was significantly older than Darth Vader, and his, his reflexes and his abilities had diminished. Uh, so this would be a type of form that would have been available to Obi-Wan even at that point uh, in order to offset some of his uh, restrictions based on his age. Within the Star Wars films, this is actually the form that is most seen because when Jedi are in combat within those films, they're typically in an aggressive attacking situation. And that really embodies what Ataru is all about. In regards to when you're thinking about which Jedi probably are the purest embodiment of this, uh, Grandmaster Yoda is certainly a major proponent of the Ataru form. He was a master of it, and he would use those acrobatics and that spinning to compensate for his short stature. So when you think of Ataru, you're thinking of Grandmaster Yoda. Now, the fifth form is actually interesting in that it is broken out into two subforms. So this particular form is comprised of Shen and Gemso, and it's also known as the way of the Crate Dragon or Perseverance form. So when you think of a Crate Dragon, the Crate Dragon was a dangerous and powerful reptile that was native to Tatooine. When you see Obi-Wan coming to save Luke Skywalker from the Sand People, he actually imitates the call of a Crate Dragon, which is what scares them off. This particular form is tied very closely to the Skywalkers, and specifically Anakin Skywalker. Anakin would tend to use Form 5 as his base form, and then he would weave in aspects of some of the other forms to enhance his attack attack and defense, depending on what was important to him at that particular time. Now, the first subform of Form 5 is known as Shen, as I mentioned before, and it really addressed the issue that Suresu had in that it was so focused on defense that it would prolong battles for an inordinate amount of time. So with Shen, instead of just deflecting blaster fire away from the user, the bolts would actually be deflected right back at the opponent, uh, and that basically resulted instead of a scenario where with Suresu, where you would have to wait for an opening in order to attack, this actually would create the opening that you needed through those deflected attacks. By contrast, Gemso was really a subform that focused mainly on lightsaber dueling, although the goal was really the same. The goal of Gemso was to redirect and counter the opponent's attack, create openings through which then you could attack. And Gemso really was a combination of the Suresu defensive form and then the Makashi offensive form. Uh, so you take those two, you you merge them together, and that's really what you're looking at with Gemso. In regards to notable Jedi characters uh, that would have used these types of techniques, certainly Anakin Skywalker, as I mentioned, used Form 5 uh, heavily as his basis for most of his attacks and defenses. When you think about Darth Vader, when he when he later became Darth Vader, spoiler alert, um, Darth Vader was famous for deflecting blaster bolts back into uh, those firing at him. So he clearly maintained that even when he became a Sith Lord. And also Ahsoka Tano, uh, although she had a reverse grip that was somewhat unconventional, she was also a Jedi who was very famous for using Form 5 techniques. So now we move into Form 6, which is known as Niman. 
uh, and The Way of the Rancor. It also had alternate titles of Moderation Form and The Diplomat's Form. This particular form is very interesting because it is a mixture of all the preceding forms that we've talked about. So while it was intended to boil down the benefits of all those previous forms into a uniform style, uh, this form was actually really an individualized form based on the personality and the mentality of the person implementing it. And in reality, the users of the Nimon form would surrender totally to the force and let it fully guide their actions which led to it being a form that was incredibly difficult to master because the user would first have needed to master at least four of the first five forms that we've discussed, and then they had to master that mindset of Nimon itself where they could let themselves basically totally surrender to the Force and let it guide their movements. Um, interestingly enough, uh, by the end of the Old Republic, this was really a form that was adopted by most Jedi, but very few of them could master it based on the the mastery of the four of the five first forms, uh, as well as the whole concept of really training their mind to allow them to slip into that battle meditation. But uh, Qui-Gon was a total believer in the mindset required for this form, where he was trying to encourage Obi-Wan to allow himself to surrender to the Force and let it guide his movements in battle. And interestingly enough, Obi-Wan actually does take his first steps down that path. So I, I would go so far as to say that this is a form that Obi-Wan, uh, by the time we see him, especially within Revenge of the Sith, that he was uh, well on his way to mastering them on. The final form uh, that we'll talk about is Form 7. Again, this is a form that has two subforms to it, and those are called Julio and Vapod. It's also known as the Way of the Vornsker, or Ferocity Form. So, very much like Form 5, as I mentioned, there are two subforms to this, and while the actual origin of the Juyo subform is not specifically known, uh, what is known is that it emerged during the period when the Jedi and the Sith were at war. So, this is a form which is pure attack with no thought given to defense beyond countering attacks to provide openings. And while it's not specifically an acrobatic form, it's a very motion based form. Uh, it relies on constant motion. And the strength of it is that the user has to rely on a strong emotion, which generally tends to result in the user basically enjoying the battle, which again was something that Jedi were generally trained not to do. They were supposed to be uh, at peace and not giving in to their emotions. In fact, because of that, the Jedi Order eventually restricted the teaching of Joyo, uh, limiting its study to only the highest-ranking masters, as it really uh, tended to open the unwary to the dangers of the dark side. Again, because of that fact that it was so heavily reliant on emotion. Of course, uh, this also is what made it a perfect form for the Sith to adopt, because their beliefs were that they really should give in to their desire and anger and enjoy the combat. So this was really the de facto form that most Sith would use within the Star Wars universe. Now, unlike Joyo, uh, the origins of Vapod are definitely well known. Uh, this was a form that was developed by Mace Windu, uh, and really, as such, it was the newest form of lightsaber combat that was known to and taught by the Jedi. Uh, this particular form was named after the Vapod, which was a brown ball-shaped creature with yellow eyes, and it had multiple tentacles. But the Vapod were actually so lightning fast that it was impossible to tell how many tentacles they had unless they were dead, as they were basically a blur to the naked eye. 
So in a way very similar to its namesake, the style used incredibly fast and deadly strikes to overwhelm an opponent. And also similar to Naman, this form is more about the specific state of mind that the Jedi would have to have as opposed to a particular fighting style. It really involved intense inner focus on the part of the user. Because the form required that the user channel their own inner darkness into the combat and accept the fury of their opponent and basically channel it back into them, uh, many believe that this was a violation of the Jedi Code, which again preached that there is no emotion, there is peace. However, the truth of this form is that the Jedi really had to learn to control their passion and not surrender to it. The resulting attack would flow from one strike to the next precisely and quickly, and the user's arms would really become a blur. So it was really, in a lot of ways, the perfect counter for the Joyo uh, side of Form 7. Uh, so again, when we look at who embodied both of these styles of combat within the films, uh, the notable practitioners of Joyo would be Darth Maul and the Sith. And certainly the most well-known user of the Vapod form would have been Mace Windu. All right, so that really serves to cover all the various forms of combat that were learned by the Jedi. Again, they would focus primarily on Shen Cho as uh, younglings or as Padawans, although typically when they got to the Padawan phase, the master that adopted them and, and was tasked with teaching them would tend to try to find the form that was best suited for them based on their approach to things and their size and whatever limitations they may have had. So most Jedi would move on from that pretty quickly uh, once they got into their Padawan phase. But in regards to the initial questions by Amy that kind of drove this discussion, the second part of the question that Amy had sent in, uh, it was really in regards to what lore or mystical qualities uh, there were around the lightsabers, specifically as it relates to the scene in Force Awakens where Rey and Kylo Ren are both trying to pull the Skywalker lightsaber out of the snow and call it to their hand, and it eventually goes to Rey as well as the Force visions that Rey had when she touched the lightsaber in Maz's cantina on Takadana. Now, in Amy's question, she really draws some comparisons to the wands within the Harry Potter series and the fact that those wands would actually choose their user and they would have a particular allegiance to that user. Uh, if you were to pick up a wand that, was, uh, that belonged to another user and attempt to use it yourself, it may work, but it wouldn't work as well as your own. And if there's any mythology around what would happen when you actually defeat a combatant and take on their lightsaber, would that actually then transfer its allegiance to you? Within the world of Star Wars, I mean, there are flavors of that and certain similarities to an extent. Uh, so when we talked earlier about lightsabers, we talk about the Jedi going on their, their particular quest to find their personal kyber crystal. Yes, the kyber crystal in a lot of ways would actually call to the Jedi. They would, they would hear its song, I believe is the way it was stated within the Clone Wars. And when they would actually acquire that kyber crystal, it would attune itself to them through the Force. And it would be more effective for that particular Jedi than it would for another user. Now, in regards to the, you know, the output of power, etc., I don't know that that was necessarily any different. That had more to do with whether the crystal was faceted a certain way. But I would definitely say, especially for Jedi who were using a lightsaber form that required them to draw on the force to enhance their abilities because that kyber crystal was attuned to them. It is reasonable to sit there and say, yes, 
this lightsaber in the hands of this Jedi is going to be more effective than, say, a lightsaber that was crafted by someone else and has a kyber crystal that didn't specifically attune itself to them. So for me, again, there was a lot more information out there prior to the expanded universe being forced into what's now called Legends. And really, Star Wars, in a lot of ways, is kind of rebuilding its lore as a result of that. Uh, But I certainly think that there's a decent amount of evidence to point in the direction that, yes, I mean, certain lightsabers, not the lightsaber itself, but the kyber crystal do attune themselves to the Jedi. They do call to the Jedi. In regards to whether defeating uh, a Jedi and taking their lightsaber would then attune that lightsaber to you, that really doesn't apply. Um, I think really the only comparable scenario for that would be that, as I mentioned in in, the episode that we did about the lightsabers, when the Sith would defeat a Jedi, they would then take and bleed that kyber crystal and subvert it to their will. But again, uh, those kyber crystals were drawn to the light and being subjugated was not really their natural form. So I think that there's a big question to be raised about whether a kyber crystal that had been bled uh, was as effective for a, a Sith as it would be for a Jedi in its pure state. In regards to the specific scenes that Amy had asked about within the films, uh, I don't really think that... Well, let's take them one at a time. So we first, we've got the scene in The Force Awakens where Kylo and Rey are battling it out in the forest. Uh, Rey's attempt, or Kylo's attempting to pull the lightsaber, the Skywalker lightsaber that he's just disarmed from Finn to his hand and it goes flying past him and and lands in Ray's hand and then the fight is on. In that particular scenario, um, I don't know that it had anything to do with the lightsaber, quote unquote, being attracted to Ray over Kylo. The exception to that statement is because that kyber crystal is attuned to the light side and Ray was really the embodiment of that in that fight. I think that it being pulled to her uh, may have in some small part actually been impacted by that. But I think it had a lot more to do with the fact that Kylo had been injured. You know, Chewbacca had shot him with his bowcaster shortly after he had killed Han Solo. And between that injury and some of the emotional trauma that he had caused himself through killing his father, and you can really see that play out in his face. He was in a fairly vulnerable position right then, and I, I think Ray was just stronger in the Force than he was at that particular moment, uh, which is why the lightsaber ended up in her hand. When you look at the scenario, uh, the second scenario that Amy mentions, uh, again in Force Awakens, where Ray is essentially called to that lightsaber and upon touching it uh, has that Force vision, which we won't go into right now, but that, that's a topic, a whole other topic for a whole other time. Uh, again, I don't know that that is necessarily the kyber crystal calling out to Ray specifically. I would say this, though, that when we talked about kyber crystals, there is a lot to be said about the fact that they're talked about as if they're almost a living embodiment of the Force themselves. And that particular lightsaber had been through some serious events. I mean, you've got the slaughter of the younglings in the Jedi Temple. You've got the combat between Anakin and Obi-Wan. You've got Luke having Darth Vader, you know, take it and his hand off in Cloud City. So it stands to reason that really strong emotional events may imprint themselves on that kyber crystal. And Rey being on this lush, verdant world where the Force is everywhere... Uh, would have potentially been able to pick up on that. And again, she was she was experiencing an awakening in the Force as well. 
that she heard something calling to her in the forest. She went down, opened that box, touched that lightsaber. And I think what was triggered was less about the lightsaber, but I think, you know, the psychic impressions that may have been imprinted on that kyber crystal are what triggered the force, vision, and ray, and led to what we saw. So there are some parallels between, say, a, star, a lightsaber in Star Wars and a wand in Harry Potter, but I don't know that they're as clear-cut uh, as maybe the question led to indicate. But still, it's a great question. Uh, it's a lot of fun to talk about. We're kind of in the realm of of theory as opposed to hard information at this point, again, because there's so little that's been really set in canon at this point. Uh, but again, I love these types of questions. Uh, I'd love to hear your opinions on it. If you're listening and you have a different take on things, please feel free to reach out either on Facebook or social media or even via email. Um, and I'll give you all that contact information at the end of the show. I'd love to talk about it. So that'll pretty much do it for the primary portion of the show. I do want to move on to a few news stories uh, in our Holland at News section specific to a couple of things that occurred this week. The first was, uh, I'm sure many of you saw, that Vanity Fair had released a new set of photos back on Wednesday of last week giving some behind-the-scenes insight into the making of Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. Now, I'll be the first person to admit I am not a big fan of spoiler information. When new films come out, I like to kind of go into them clean um, and not really have any set expectations. But there was actually a few interesting pieces of information uh, that accompanied these photos that I don't consider spoilers. Um, the first is that uh, within Episode Nine, it is confirmed that the Knights of Ren are going to be part of this new film, uh, which I know a lot of Star Wars fans are going to be happy about. They were dealt with so briefly in Force Awakens, and there were a lot of questions about what information was going to be released about the Knights of Ren and where they've been. So it looks like we're going to get some of that information in this particular film. Also, that desert planet that you see uh, in the trailer uh, has been revealed as a planet named Pasana, and that's where we see Ray in that particular trailer. So we will wait and see. Um, it does open the door for some questions about whether that's actually Kylo flying the TIE Interceptor or whether it might be one of the Knights of Ren. Uh, we're just going to have to wait and see how that all plays out. They have also released a photo of some of the natives of this planet who are known as the Aki Aki. So if you take a look at the photos that get released, uh, that have been released in Vanity Fair, you're going to see them. There's the alien portion of that group photo of the Akiaki are really actually kind of interesting. They're almost like squid-headed, I guess is the best way to say it. Uh, they've kind of got a bulbous uh, section at the top of their head with some eyes and then two tentacles down where their mouth would be. So interesting looking alien. Star Wars has always been great at, at releasing new alien species. Uh, and it looks like we're going to see more of that in this particular film. Now, the other question that I had in watching that trailer was the snowy planet that is seen in that trailer. That has now been revealed as a planet called Kijimi. So it's also revealed uh, that Carrie Russell, who had been announced as a cast member, but there was really no detail on what role she'd be playing within the film, is going to be playing a mass scoundrel named Zori Bliss. And that she is going to be a denizen of the Thieves' Quarter on this new planet of Kajimi. So I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with that. Again, I've got some theories surrounding that spacecraft that we see approaching that planet has a lot of similarities to the ship that dropped Ray off in Force Awakens. Uh, so we will see if there's any payout on that, if, if maybe we're going to get a different backstory on her, on Ray's parentage, than what was revealed to her by Kylo Ren, who... 
I think we can all say was probably highly suspect in any information that he revealed in The Last Jedi. Now, the other news story that we've got this week, and unsurprisingly, given how we are again uh, quickly approaching the release uh, or the opening of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge out at the Disneyland Resort, is that there has been some additional information released on some of the offerings within that land. The first of which is that the Droid Depot, which is going to allow guests to customize their own R2 or BB unit droid, those will be offered for $99.99 a piece uh, with an additional $14 each for personality chips. And those personality chips uh, are really going to be what gives the droid its allegiance to either the First Order or the Resistance or whether it's going to kind of play it, play the middle of the road there. Also, Sabi's Workshop, which from what I've been hearing, uh, the folks that have had access, early access to this land have been raving about the quality of the lightsabers coming out of Sabi's Workshop. They have released more details on that, the first of which is that the the base cost to build your lightsaber is $199.99. You're going to get your lightsaber with your kyber crystal in a carrying case for that price. Um, it sounds like there's going to be some additional options for guests to customize those lightsabers uh, a little bit further, but I have not really heard any detail on what those additional customization costs are going to be. But what they did release is that this experience is going to have three sessions per hour is what they estimate. And each of those sessions is going to be 28 guests. So it's 14 guests that are going to be in there uh, actually building and customizing their lightsaber. And each of those guests can bring one additional guest, which they'll just be there to to watch the process and kind of get to enjoy it from that perspective. So 28 guests, uh, three shows per hour or three experiences per hour. It's going to be pretty limited, especially when you consider that half of those guests are, again, there just to watch and not actually partake in the building of the lightsaber. So I'm looking forward to seeing more detail come out about that once the land is fully open and uh, more people have had a chance to get in there. The one thing that has really held true is that the folks that have been in there and have built their lightsaber have been raving about the quality of them, uh, and they seem to be very impressed. So I'm looking forward to seeing that myself. Um, And finally, again, this is tied to Galaxy's Edge out there at the Disneyland Resort, but the Disney Parks blog announced late last week that the dedication ceremony for Star Wars Galaxy's Edge will be taking place today, as this show is actually getting posted on Wednesday, May 29th. So at 8.29 p.m. tonight, Pacific Time, and 11.20 Eastern Time, you'll be able to tune in on Disney Parks blog, and they're also going to have it linked, I believe, to their Facebook page and their YouTube channel that you're going to be able to watch this ceremony as well as get some sneak previews of a little bit more of the land in its finished state. So uh, I know that the fact that there are people who've been in the land, but they've been fairly limited in terms of what they can release, this will actually be for most of us who are not going to be there on opening day, uh, a great opportunity to really see what it looks like in its finished state. So Looking forward to that. Again, if anyone is interested in talking about Star Wars, if you have any questions you'd like to send in for me to address on the show, please go ahead and do that. We can be reached at jtapodcast at gmail.com and then on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest at jtapodcast. I always love to get the feedback. I always love to hear what's on your mind, what questions you've got, and I love taking part in any discussion associated with Star Wars. So please reach out and we will have that conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend us to a friend. 
write a review if you'd be so kind, as that's going to help other listeners find us. And ultimately, we're really here to serve you and try to deliver information that's going to make Star Wars a more enjoyable experience for you and your family. So uh, again, thank you so much for listening. I hope you all had a great holiday weekend, and we look forward to talking with you next week. May the Force be with you. <laughs>